0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? Father, we thank you for that truth this morning that your amazing grace has found us, has come to us, has sought us out in our brokenness and our shame and our guilt and our fear and our sin in our wandering and our straying lord you came to us you brought your grace to us you extended your mercy to us you extended your hand to us and because of that we're able to have life we're able to have life abundantly We're able to experience all of your goodness. And it's in that that we ultimately rest. We find rest. We find joy. We find peace and comfort. And so God, today as we talk about this idea of life and receiving life from you, my prayer is, Lord, that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our understanding, So that we would have a better view of how to live our lives in a way in which leads to life and not death. That leads to joy and not despair. So Father, guide us in this time as we open up your word and as we teach your word. Let it not just be mere knowledge that we receive, but let it be food for our souls for us to know you more and to treasure you more and to receive more of you and you alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, glad you were able to navigate the roads this morning. For the most part, I, I feel like they were clear, but there were definitely some slick spots on, on the way. Um, poll for you, real quick. How many of you are snow lovers versus snow haters? All right, we got one. <laughs> one snow hater. You can excuse yourself. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. You can stay. Um, I personally love the snow bus because I come from the south, and like to us, snow is like a dusting that's gone by like 10 a.m. Um, but they'll like close out school for like four days because of it. And so that's, uh, it's always a, I, I, I enjoy it, I like it. And so I played in the snow yesterday with my two boys and, and with Kelsey. And so we had a, we had a good time. Anybody else play in the snow yesterday? Anyone? All right. All right. A few of you in there. Um, but it's good. It's good to be with you this morning and to just worship together um, and to open up God's word. We're in a series right now um, in the month of January. We're looking at a series called Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is just a fancy word, a liturgical word in in the historical church calendar uh, that means to make known or to make manifest. Um, And so we're looking over this month on how Jesus Christ has not only come um, as the incarnate God, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we looked at in December. That's what Advent season is, is the coming of Jesus. But now that he's come... He's now making himself known to be God. And so what does that look like? How does he make himself known? How does he become ultimately light in the midst of darkness? And so today uh, we're going to be looking at this idea of Jesus being light in the world, pushing back darkness, pushing back darkness in, in all kinds of ways. And, and last week we talked about um, different ways in which that light push backs darkness. Um, that is in the form of him bringing sight to the blind, um, him bringing good news to the poor, Um, Him ultimately ministering to those who are in need of forgiveness of sins. And so this is the way in which Jesus is pushing back darkness as he himself is light of the world. Now, not only is he pushing back darkness in the sense of handling and kind of taking care of our faults and our failures and our sin and our um, immoral status, our immoral identities that we have apart from him... But he's also bringing something to us that isn't just taking care of those things, but then is also enhancing um, our spiritual lives as we are in the here and now. And what I'm referring by that is life, joy, gladness. So how is Jesus coming in and bringing for us life? And as it says in John 10.10, not only life, but life Abundantly, And so what does that mean for Jesus to be made known, to manifest himself as light of the world that brings the word of life? Life for us, life abundantly. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, is this idea of life. And, and as I kind of mentioned last week, we're talking life from beginning of our lives to deathbed. All aspects within the... the The abundance of life in our lifespan. So we're going to be in a couple of places today. We're going to be in 1 John primarily, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 John. Um, But I'm going to start out in John 1 um because i believe it sets up some scaffolding for us it sets up some some really good foundations for us to later understand first john both are written by the same guy the apostle john um so he wrote the book of john and then also wrote the epistles first second and third john and so he's I'm going to be recording for us this, but you're kind of seeing a little bit of difference between John 1 and 1 John 1, even though there's a lot of similarities. And so I'm going to cross-reference both of them, but I'm going to first begin in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, to kind of, again, set up a foundation for us to understand how this light ultimately becomes life for us. So in John 1, verses 1 through 5, I'm just going to read it for you. It says, In the beginning was the Word and the word was with God and the word was God so John is opening up the book of John the Gospel of John with this idea and he's kind of he's cross-referencing Genesis 1 this idea of in the beginning in the beginning was this word word there's logos word there is ideology of who God is in representation this word was with God, so now we're talking community, we're talking fellowship. This word that he's referring to was with God. They were in community together. And then he also says this word was God. So not only were they in community together, but they are God. So now we're talking Trinitarian view. We're talking the fact that you can have distinct persons that represent God in his fullness. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So now he's personifying it here. He's not just saying this is an objective word, but it's a personal word. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 now rolls into him talking about roles and purpose. All things were made through him. So this word, this person, this, this God is the essence in which all things are made And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Verse 4. In him was life. In this word is all of life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. So now we're starting to see implications of this light stepping into our world. This light, this word, this life, this God is stepping into our darkness as the ultimate light that is shining. And what is shining in the midst of the darkness is life. And the darkness has not overcome it. So this Jesus, this God, this person who is stepping into our darkness has an authority and power to be able to push back darkness and never be overcome by it. And then we see in verse 14, this word... ...became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now we're able to see that this Word, who's the light of men, who is life... ...who all of life has been made through Him, has now not only come from eternity past... ...but is now stepping into our world, our darkness, taking on flesh... Dwelling among us. And John is testifying, saying that we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. So he's saying this God who steps into our darkness, bringing light, bringing life, is going to push back that darkness. That darkness will never overcome Him. And so that's producing something in us knowing that The darkness is not circumstantial in the sense that it's coming on us, but rather we have produced it in our own sin and rebellion. So the faith that has been able to produce within us in this moment is that as he is pursuing us in our darkness, as he's dwelling among us, he's pushing the darkness out of us by bringing himself within us. By bringing his light within us, his life within us, his identity within us, his godness within us. And the sin that we carry will never overcome the work that Jesus is doing within our lives. That's what's producing here. That's what John is ultimately getting at in this idea. This isn't us as humans trying to kind of still tip the scales on good and evil. I'm still trying to work out good things that I do. I'm still trying to not do bad things that I do. And I hope that at the end of my life, God's able to look at all of my acts and my deeds and my thoughts and my words and everything and kind of hope that I've done more good than bad. And so therefore, he'll grant me grace. He'll grant me salvation because of my work. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he sees us as sinners. And while we were yet sinners, he came and pursued us. He came to fix us. So our theme for this month is epiphany, the manifestation of Christ. Jesus making himself known to us. And the way he makes himself known to us is by coming as light in the midst of our darkness This light in John 1 and also as we'll see in 1 John 1 does not just make Christ known outside of us but it's making Christ known within us. Christ coming as the light of the world and the darkness of the world metaphorically is Him physically and metaphorically bringing life in the midst of death. Sin is killing us, destroying us. And what Jesus is doing, coming as the light of the world bringing life life abundant is he's pushing death out of us in order to breathe life into us not only is this life in our daily routines as we'll see in a minute as we talk about joy and gladness but this is life eternal this is life as the song was saying when we've been there 10,000 years What Jesus is doing in our lives right now is producing within us a worship that will last 10,000 years and beyond. This is eternal what's going on in our lives and what Jesus is doing as he is making himself known in the midst of our darkness. So that's the foundation, Jesus coming as the light of the world dwelling among us. Now I want to see this personalized a little bit more as John begins to kind of take this into a into greater detail how he's personally experienced this Jesus. So now we'll we'll be in first John chapter one and I'm going to pick it up in verse one. First John chapter one verse one. That which was from the beginning. So you can also see like he's kind of starting out both of these books very similar. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. So in case you're not catching on to what John is trying to say here, he, he knows Jesus personally personally. He's seen him, he's heard him, he's touched him, he's, he's hitting all the senses that we have. And, in, and not only this, but he's in fellowship with him. He's testifying and proclaiming this Jesus Christ. To testify and to proclaim are two different things. A lot of times we kind of refer to those as, as very similar, but they're different. Testifying in the Greek is a word that means one has had divine revelation and experience. I've received something, I've experienced something, I've witnessed something. Something that I did not produce, I did not do, has happened towards me. And to proclaim is now that I've experienced whatever that revelation is, I now want to declare it, I want to share it. I want to bring good news, I want to bring glad tidings to somebody. I want to express what it is that I've now experienced. So that's what John is attempting to do in this epistle, in this letter, is he's wanting to bring good news. He's wanting to testify. He's wanting to share this experience that he has had with Jesus. John's testimony is also not that he has just merely seen, heard, and touched Jesus, but that he is in fellowship with Jesus. Let's keep reading. Proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father... And was made manifest to us. So at first in John 1, as we were looking, you're seeing Jesus has come and dwelt among us. He's come from heaven to earth. But now John is moving it into, not only has he come to earth, but he's come to us. He's moving within us. He's coming personally to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, when first reading this, it sounds like John is just simply teaching these people, sharing with them some news in order to get them to just come and be a part of their gang. Come and be a part of their group. Come and be a part of their fellowship, as he he says here. Come and be a part of their country club. We're telling you these things because we want you to have fellowship with us, membership with us, friendship with us. We simply want more friends. We've had a rough time finding friends. You seem like a good guy. We, We want to get to know you. We want you to get to know us. So this really just kind of seems like just an invitation to church. I want to tell you about this Jesus who I've seen, who I've touched, who I've heard. And because I know that guy, he's kind of name dropping Jesus here. I want you to just come and hang out with us. But there's something deeper to this fellowship. It's deeper than just having people come into a group of people who know a famous guy. So John expounds upon this fellowship. Look at the end of verse 3. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, now that changes things. So by me joining your fellowship, not only do I gain new friends, but you gain God. You gain God. The church of Jesus Christ is the only group of people who can testify and proclaim that their community includes the active presence and fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's the only group, organized group in all of the world that God, through the fellowship of the people, resides and fellowships with them in that presence in that place, in that community, regardless if it's here on a Sunday morning or whether it's in a house on a Wednesday night, whether it's in a prayer meeting on a Saturday morning, as the people of God get together and fellowship with one another, that fellowship is just not them in that room, but it is including the God of the universe who, as John 1 says, has created everything through Jesus Christ. He is there in fellowship with them. In verse 4, he starts to now explain why this fellowship is so important and why it's so important to invite people into this fellowship. Verse 4, he says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So to sum up this introduction of John in his letter, he's saying... We are experiencing gladness of heart, joy. Gladness of heart because of the fellowship to which we belong that is receiving fullness of life from Jesus Christ. That's what John's opening introduction is. We are receiving gladness of heart because of the fellowship to which we belong That is receiving the fullness of Jesus Christ. The fullness of life from Jesus Christ. Jesus is ultimately producing a life-giving community of completely glad people. That's church. That's church. Focusing on Jesus. Who is bringing to us a life-giving community that's producing glad people hearts that's why we do what we do so that is the theology for us today that's the study of what god is ultimately producing when he's bringing life to us that's where the foundation of life and gladness is built upon So what I want to look at, and we're going to keep walking through 1 John here, is I want to look at how then does this life-giving fellowship with Jesus inform our worldview of life in general. If this is Jesus bringing life to us and producing it within us, what then are the implications of how that life now begins to move, not only within our own hearts and minds and souls, but what does that then cause us To do. How does that cause us to live? How does it cause us to think about life in general? How does it cause us to to view children and to view young men and women and to view old men and women? How do we then move towards them in a way in which Jesus has moved towards us? That's what we're going to be looking at in the rest of this time here. So picking it up in verse 5. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John immediately moves into some application here. If Jesus is the light of the world who's moved into the darkness of the world to bring life. Why is he bringing life? Because what we know in Romans chapter 3, as everyone has sinned is basically what Romans 3 is saying. We then know that in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. So the reason why he's bringing life into the world is because all of our actions, deeds, thoughts, whether good or bad, apart from Christ are leading us to death, destroying us. So he's bringing life in in order to move death out of us, to bring life within us. So now he's starting to kind of apply this to our lives. If you truly know Jesus, if you've seen him, if you've touched him, if you've experienced him, if you've received received the grace that Jesus brings to us, then you are going to walk in this grace. You're going to walk in this light. You're going to see life through a clearer lens than what you've seen through the lens of sin. So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's going to change some ways in which we see life, in which we see people. Jesus moved towards us when we were at our worst. Not only were we at our worst, but we were in active rebellion against him. Jesus on the cross, as they're murdering him, is seeing them through the lens of life, not death. He's seeing them through the lens of, I'm laying my life down. I'm sacrificing my life so that they would not experience what I'm personally experiencing right now. I do not want them to experience death. Therefore, I will experience the death so that I can give them life. The reason why we know that's what was on Jesus' thought as he was on the cross is because he asked God to forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In them killing Jesus, they're killing themselves. Their act of sin, their act of murder, their act of rebellion is destroying themselves and because they're dead in their sins, they're dead in their transgressions, they don't even know that they're doing it. Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. Forgiveness of sins is moving you from death to life. It's a prayer for them to have life. One of the ways we know that that translates to us in our view towards others is we see that in the deacon Stephen when he is being stoned to death. What's some of Stephen's last words as he's being murdered? Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. The same life that Jesus brought to Stephen is changing Stephen's worldview of life towards others to where he's saying, I don't want them to be held accountable for the sin that they are committing right now. Jesus moved towards them to bring them life just like you moved towards me and brought me life. It changes the way in which we view others, whether they're harming us, oppressing us, whether they're blaspheming us, whether they're lying towards us, whether they're slandering against us, whether they disagree with us, whether they have a different political party than us, whether they're on Facebook and they constantly just want to debate everybody that's on Facebook, whatever it is about other people. That you might view as as I need to create a subculture. I need to create space. I need to get away from those people. The gospel says we need to move towards everyone. Hoping that we bring life to them. Just as Jesus has brought life to us. Are we walking in that is what John is beginning to ask here. Are we moving towards people to bring life to them rather than removing ourselves? Because if we remove ourselves, then we're basically proclaiming we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand life. We're still moving towards death. Moving into chapter 2, he begins to personalize this even more. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love this. Even when we become Christians, we still sin. I mean, right? Is there anyone in here, like, since you become a Christian, have never sinned? We still sin, but we have Jesus who is advocating for us life, not death, at all times. Scriptures refer to Jesus as being our high priest, being the one who is constantly, 24-7, 365 days a year, every waking second, is producing for your account, your identity, righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. He's advocating for us at every single moment. That sin he just committed, God, you will forgive it no more. Or you will forgive it and you will remember it no more. That sin he's about to commit in 10 minutes, God, you will remember it no more. I am advocating for him. I am advocating for her life, life, They receive eternal life. They receive life abundantly. They receive forgiveness of sins because Jesus has paid for and purchased all of our righteousness through His life and His death and His resurrection. Because Jesus has purchased all of that for us, He is in control of our estate of our soul and our spirit. And therefore, He is advocating for us every single moment. Eternal life, life. Eternal life, life. Give them life. Give them forgiveness of sins. Give them righteousness. Give them grace. Extend to them mercy. Jesus is advocating this for us. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So now John is trying to move this idea of what Jesus has produced within you. This isn't just for you. This needs to move you, propel you, compel you to take this out and share it with those around you. Because this isn't just for you. This is for the world. Be advocates for life for those who are outside of you Why is it so important for us to study the life of Jesus through the Gospels? And to study the promises of Jesus in the Old Testament? And to study the testimony of the apostles who have witnessed the life of Jesus through the epistles? Is because they all testify, proclaim, and declare how Jesus was going to live, how He lived, and how they remember Him living That informs us on how we are to walk in this life through the grace that he fuels for us. The grace that he extends to us. How are we to keep the commandments of Jesus that he's taught? Because we know that Jesus is an advocate for us who has sent us the Holy Spirit to not only be guided in the truth of the word, but is strengthening us to be able to abide by the truth of his word. To be able to be obedient to the truth of his word. To be able to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. So that we begin to think the way Jesus thought. We begin to speak the way that Jesus spoke. We begin to extend grace to others the way that Jesus extended grace to others. We begin to view and have our worldview shaped and molded by the way in which Jesus viewed everything. Everything. So then he gets even more practical with it. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's about to get to this idea of this is an old commandment that I'm about to tell you. But it's also a new commandment. The reason why it's a new commandment is because the old commandment and and I'll go and tell you what that is. He's basically going to get into the idea of loving God and loving others. The old commandment, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. You can sum up the entire Old Testament law in those two commands. That's what John does in his book. In the Gospel of John. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. That's the greatest commandment. And another commandment is just like it. Love others. The way in which he says it's an old commandment is we could not do that. So it is now a new commandment for you because Jesus has produced for us the ability to do that. Why? Why? Because Jesus has come and brought us life within our identity. And has pushed out the darkness. What the darkness within us does, what sin does within us, is sin moves us away from God and away from others. That's what the enemy, that's what Satan is trying to do constantly, is move us away from fellowship with God and into isolation by ourselves. Because that is anti-gospel. That's anti-Bible. That's anti-God. Is to move away from God. What happened in the Garden of Eden? You don't need God. You can become like God. If you become like God, then you don't need God. He's moving us away from communion, away from relationship with the Father away from relationship with God as Trinity. Just do it in your own. Go and eat the, the fruit. You will become so much like God that you can dictate what you do and what you don't do. So not only did that move and that sin separate us from God, but immediately you see the separation of Adam and Eve. You immediately see the blaming and the sin that moved into their relationship just as much to where it now moves into isolation. It was the woman that you gave me. Sin is isolating us from God and from others. So this new commandment, this Jesus who is now moving towards us to both reconcile us into relationship with God and reconcile us in relationship with others is producing within us love that binds those things together. The gospel binds us to loving God and then loving others. Verse 9. You see the application of what he just taught in verses 7 through 8. Whoever says he is in the light... Are you in Jesus? Are you in the word of life? Are you in Christ? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. This is basically the entire book of James. Are you saying you're a Christian, yet you don't have the fruit of Christianity being produced in your life? Then you're not a Christian. You can't be an apple tree that does not produce apples. That's what he's saying here. If we say we are in the light, if we say we are in Jesus, but yet we hate our brother, then we are actually exposing the fact that we are still in darkness. However, in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So whoever loves his brother is revealing the fact that they are in relationship, abiding in Jesus. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then he gives us three categories of people that he's advocating for, that John is moving towards, that John is wanting to experience life, life abundant. And I'm going to break these three down as well in our closing. Verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. John, in the way that he writes this, and in the Greek language, in the way that he refers to children and fathers and young men, is representing three generations that cover, essentially, everybody who, is, who has a heartbeat. You're either a child, you're either a young person, or you are beginning to have a legacy of children. Whether you're a father or a grandparent or great-grandparent, whatever that looks like. So what he's saying here is you either have hate for your brother or you have love for your brother. There's no indifference, there's no lukewarm middle-of-the-road stance towards others. We're either moving toward children, young people, or fathers, grandparents, whatever, we're either moving towards them in love or away from them in hate. If Christ is in us, it's producing a move towards in love for all generations, all demographics, or we're either moving away in hate. We don't care that they experience life. We don't care that they get to know Jesus as their ultimate gladness of heart. I want to first start with the children. We must value the lives of our children. We must be advocating for them to have fellowship with us and to receive life, eternal life from Jesus so that they have the chance to live a glad, joy-filled life. If we believe that mankind are ultimately image-bearers of God... That includes all of mankind, which includes our children. Image bearers, they, they, they possess a soul, a moral compass, a conscience that contemplates the value and worth of existence. So my question when it comes to advocating for children is, and this is, very, this is a hot topic, this is very controversial. At what point then does that begin? At what point do we advocate for children to move towards them in life? Well, I just want to read what Scripture says. The Bible is going to answer it for us. Psalm 58, verse 3, the Bible says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now, that's a strange text to advocate for life. But what it's saying there is, in womb, you have identity of soul and spirit. They're considered wicked. They're estranged. They're set apart from Christ. Well, how can that happen if they've not been born yet to to choose wrong? It only happens if there's an image bearer within the womb. If there's a a God-created soul that bears the weight of either unrighteous or righteous. And Psalms 58 is saying that that happens from the womb. Job 14 verse 4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Same ideology there, same concept there from Job saying that, that literally sinners come from the womb. There is spirituality there. There's identity there. Job 15 verse 14 says, What is man that he can be pure, or who is he born of a woman that he can be righteous? Still getting at this idea of, of the soul, the imago Dei, the spiritual identity of an individual is intact in utero. Psalm 50, 51, verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're just listening to the Bible here. Let me answer the question according to the Word of God about when the soul comes into human cellular matter. Conception. Conception. At conception, there's a soul. There's DNA. That is not the DNA of the mother. There's personhood. There's as the Bible is teaching, there's a Mago day present at conception. Not after the first trimester, not after the second trimester. A human being is born, soul intact, when sperm and egg meet and unite. You now have a human, a living human being, a little image bearer of God. And to kill that little image bearer is to attack God. It's to move towards death rather than life. It's to move towards destruction. Now this has all sorts of implications. From the point of conception, worship is meant to be produced out of father and mother because of what God is doing in utero. God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiplies now in action and is healthy and good and constitutes from us a sense of awe and marvel because of what God is doing there. And what is he doing there? This is what Psalm 139 verses 13 through 16 say. You formed me. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. spirituality before there's even a form of substance to know before any type of scientific evidence can even even prove that there's life before any type of pregnancy test can test whether or not the mother is pregnant, God is already creating life and to destroy that at any moment advocate for the death of that is to say we do not walk in the light. Is to say we do not advocate for the life of our children. Now I know that that is can be a very very heavy topic. Because there are thousands thousands of arguments going on around this idea. And, and, and there is absolutely from, from us, a sensitivity towards the women and the men who are a part of the atrocity that is abortion. We have a sensitivity towards it because I understand. I know what it's like to feel like you can't do something. And and the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because of the conversations that I've had with countless, countless young girls who have a boyfriend who is oppressing them, pushing them towards this. Or they have a fear that they're not going to be able to Bring this this child into an existence that is going to be good and life giving. And so they felt they had no choice. And if we are advocating for life, we're not only advocating for the life of the unborn, we're advocating for the life of those who don't think they have an option, who don't think they have a choice but to abort who don't think they have a, an opportunity to have a fellowship of people come around them to help resource them to be able to raise a child that they think is impossible to raise. And this is, not only just, this is not just towards women who abort, but this is also for, as Hannah Anderson says, she's a theologian, a writer. For every woman who aborts a baby, there's the absentee of a male Who is either present and pushing for it, or is gone, leaving her no option. It's a heart issue. It's a gospel issue. Yes, it's a social issue. But if we're not moving towards people to advocate for life, both for the unborn and the mother who thinks she doesn't have a choice... then we will continue to see this murder happen. If we're truly about life, we move towards everybody that's involved, all parties. Which is why I love the fact that he also addresses young men and women. I wanna look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 through 16 when it deals with young men and women. It says, let no one despise you for your youth, Beset the believers in example, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by, the prophecy, when, by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on both yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for so by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is instructing Timothy, a young man, who at this point is, is with, between the ages of 15 to 20, don't let someone look down on you because of your youthfulness, but set an example for others in essentially life. In your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Set an example for them. Move towards them by the life that's being produced within you. We are to advocate that this is not to say that we are to wait for someone to graduate high school before we can take them seriously when it comes to teaching them the gospel and having them teach and proclaim the gospel to others. We do not wait for people to get to a certain point place in life for us to begin teaching them or, or developing them to become leaders. For those of you that don't know my story, the first time I ever heard the gospel was because a fifth grader shared the gospel with me. A fifth grader, a 10 year old knew the gospel enough and knew Jesus had changed his life enough that it was imperative For him to share with his next door neighbor, a 12 year old, who was a very poor influence on him at the time. This is what you need to know about Jesus Christ. His heart was so captivated by Jesus that he moved towards me for me to experience life. He also addresses fathers, mothers, older men, older women, and widows. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 8, he says this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Definitely some weird text within this one when it comes to this idea of advocating for life. But what he's basically saying here is do not neglect intentionality with older men and older women to encourage them as you would encourage your own father. To be there for them in situations where they're going to need the fellowship of believers around them. That's what he's talking about with this idea of being a true widow. Is there anyone to care for her? If not, then care for her. Move towards her to bring her life, fullness of life, quality of life in her old age. And not only that, but if, if they have family who's able to care for them are they still advocating for their family as well so that they're leaving for them a legacy? Are they making provision for their family? All of this, whether it is unborn to the the elderly person, are they moving towards others so that others would be able to experience the fullness of life, life abundantly here? And all of this is all wrapped up in this idea of it's going to both involve materialism as well as spirituality. Are we leaving something? Are we creating opportunity for our families to not necessarily need the resources of others? But at the same time, Are we also moving towards them to teach them, as he's telling Timothy, conduct and love and faith and purity? Are you setting an example for those around you? Are you moving towards them to know this Jesus who brings life and life abundantly? I want to simply just close out by us. Us thinking of our walk. Our walk. And what the Bible means by just walk is just what's your day-to-day look like? Is there opportunities for us to invest our lives? From what we've experienced in our walk with Jesus, as John says, what what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've touched, what what I've witnessed, what I've experienced has moved me towards loving my brothers, loving my sisters well? Has what we've experienced in our walk with Jesus, has it produced us an investment, an intentional investment to where we want to move towards these three categories? How do we invest in the younger generation? How do we invest in our peers? And how do we invest in the elderly who need the fellowship that John says Jesus is producing? How do we invest that? And so I'll have the band. Guys, go ahead and come on up. Guys and gals, go ahead and come on up. And and I want us just to think about that. Younger generation, who can we invest in? Who can we be intentional with? Peers, who can we be intentional with? And elderly. Who can we be intentional with? Who can we be an advocate, as John says? I'm an advocate for them. As Jesus is advocating for me to have life, I want to advocate for others that they would have life. How can you do that? What avenues do you have to do that? And if you're like, man, I can think of two out of three. I'm missing one. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Let's look for ways in which we can be advocates For life, for Jesus to come into their life. To bring them life in the midst of their darkness. To push out their darkness, to push out their death. So that they would receive 10,000 years of eternal life. Life abundant. Let's pray together. God, right now I ask that your spirit who not only is just in this place but is in us. Holy Spirit, will you continue to form our minds, our hearts, our identities to see your view of others so that it would produce within us desire to be advocates for life for those around us. How can we enhance the life of those around us? God, I pray that you impress that on our hearts. I pray that you impress that on the way in which we steward our resources, we steward our lives, our time, our money. How can we make adjustments in order to create space For us to be advocates for others, to move towards others in love and not in hate. God, I pray that your Spirit continues to to guide us in that understanding and that truth. For it's in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. We ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At